There was a man and his family who were moving into a new neighborhood, and as they sat in their car in front of the house waiting for the moving truck to arrive, they noticed that there was a, a little boy across the street who was trying to ring a doorbell. And this little boy struggled to reach it. He was on his tippy toes. He was doing all kinds of things, and he just couldn't reach the doorbell. And the man's wife looked at her husband, and she said, Honey, why don't you go be a good neighbor and ring the doorbell for that little boy? And so the man got out, he walked across the street, and he came up behind the little boy and he said, here, son, let me do that for you, and he pushed the doorbell. And this little boy looks up at him and he said, thanks, mister, now run. <laughs> now, some of you this morning, as you looked in your Bible at the passage we're gonna be looking at here in Luke chapter 10, the, the passage of the Good Samaritan, you probably thought, you know, let's run. You know, you're thinking, I've read this story so many times, the application is so obvious. I mean, what is it that the pastor is going to tell us today about this story? When we hear the words Good Samaritan, it's, it's something that we equate with a person who helps another in need. The world is full of titles that go with Good Samaritan. We have a Christian organization called Samaritan's Purse that reaches out around the world helping. There are Good Samaritan hospitals that have been established around the world to help those who are in need. There's the Good Samaritan Road Club that helps people who are broken down on the side of the road. The, the news will talk about the, the last story involving a Good Samaritan, and we know that it was somebody who helped another in need. So that's a context for us, but when we go back to Jesus' day, when Jesus tells a story where he makes a Samaritan the hero of the story, where he equates the word Samaritan and good together, that would have blown the minds of the first century Jews. Because for the Jewish audience in Jesus' day, the only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. Samaritans were a half-breed. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. They were a, a people who had intermarried during the days of captivity, and they were seen as outcasts, as traitors. And so when Jesus tells a story where he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story, it would have caused people to sit up and take notice. I want you to look with me at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 30, as we read the story of the Good Samaritan, with that understanding in your mind, so that you look at this story with fresh eyes. Luke 10, 30 tells us, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and they went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came, to, came along to him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who was in need? who fell into the robber's hands. And he, sa and, and he said to him, the one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. 
So you're thinking, okay, preacher, if I'm ever driving up the highway and I see a man lying in a ditch, I'm going to pull over on the side of the road, I'll throw a, a, a blanket or a towel over him, I'll pour a little beer on his wounds, throw him in the back of my pickup truck, and stop at the next motel and drop him off. Well, that would be one way to apply what we just read, but I think there's a, a deeper meaning that we can draw from this. So let's look a little deeper into this. The first thing I want to do is help you understand what prompted Jesus to tell this story. As you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, what you find in the first part of Luke chapter 10 is that there were several groups who had just returned from ministry trips, and they had enjoyed great success. As they were reporting these things, Jesus reminds them that their success is a result of his power. He says to them in Luke 10, 19, and 20, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are, sub are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. What Jesus says is the real reason for rejoicing is that you've received the gift of eternal life. Having turned to me as your Savior, you, your names are recorded in heaven. Now, Jesus continues his conversation. He turns his back toward the larger crowd that he mentioned this to, and, and he's speaking with his disciples. He says there in verses 23 through 24, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. You see, what Jesus says is, you guys are blessed to be in the inner circle. There's the larger crowd, but then a smaller group of you are getting to hear me explain what you're hearing, the parables that I teach, the lessons God wants you to draw from these. Jesus says, do you know that the prophets of old, the people who, whose God's spirit spoke to and through, they don't even know the things that you guys get to see, the kings who had all the worldly advisors out there, they didn't even get to have the explanations that y'all get. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do we ever realize how blessed we are today to have the Bible, the totality of God's revelation, his word given to us, to have the privilege of being able to hear and read and understand things that even the prophets and even the disciples early on did not get to understand. Now, as Jesus is saying this, we see that in the crowd, there's a certain man who stands up. This is what prompts this whole story. There's this, this sidebar going on where Jesus is talking to the disciples, and there's a lawyer in the crowd. Now, you'll remember the religious leaders of the day were called scribes and Pharisees, the Sadducees, others. Lawyers were part of this group. And they're used to being the center of attention. They're used to being the guys that everybody is listening to or knowing all that is going on. And this one guy in the crowd notices he's not in the sidebar, and he wants in on it. In fact, he wants the attention on himself. And so in verse 25, as this is going on, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test. You see, as the lawyer sees Jesus with the sidebar, he says, Teacher, well, of course, everybody in the crowd turns around and says, who's this guy? What's going on? J. Vernon McGee, who's a, a Bible teacher, tells the story of two lawyers that were in a bitter uh, court uh, dispute. And as the trial was going on, the first one gets up and he points at the opposing lawyer and he says, your honor, he's a liar. And that lawyer stands up and says, well, your honor, he's a thief. 
And the judge bangs the gavel down and he says, okay, now that the lawyers have identified each other, let's get on with the trial. (laughs) And what we have here is a lawyer, a teacher of the law, standing up and saying to Jesus, teacher. He's identifying Jesus as a rabbi, a learned teacher, a religious leader, and yet he doesn't fully understand who he's dealing with. Because Jesus is much more than just another religious leader. He is the son of God. Now, as he says this, he says, Jesus, I have a a question for you. Now, the Greek word that is used literally means a test. The word that he uses here is the same one found in Luke 4, 2, where it says, Jesus was tempted by the devil. This lawyer isn't standing up with an honest question. He's wanting to show everybody who the top dog is in the crowd. And so it says that he wants to tempt or try. Literally, it means to draw into battle. This guy's setting up a debate in front of the crowd. Now, the lawyer says, Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus meets this lawyer on his grounds. He says, okay, you want to have a discussion about the law? Let's talk about the law. He says in verse 26, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Now, if you're the lawyer, you're thinking, man, this is my lucky day. I get to shine in front of everybody because I am an expert on the law. So he gets this softball right across center plate. He's about to hit a grand slam home run, he thinks. It says, and he answered and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You see, what he does here is he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 and he quotes from Leviticus 19.18. And in verse 28, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. And the lawyer goes, yeah, I know. I'm an expert in the law. So he's reaching in his pocket to get his card out, start handing out to the crowd. Any of you guys have any questions, call me, you know. And while this is going on, it's not that Jesus is saying, you're right. If you just keep the law, fulfill 100% of the law, then you will get to God in heaven. That's not what he's saying. Let me ask you a question. If you were standing on the coastline of California, could you swim to Hawaii? Now, there's water the whole way, right? But could you swim from California to Hawaii unaided all by yourself? Get in the water, wade in, and swim all the way to Hawaii. Would anybody here make it? No. And it's the same way with the law. What God says is, there is the law, and as you read through the scriptures, it says, if you want to try to get to God by the law, then keep the law. 100% of the time, never ever making one single mistake. Is there anybody who is capable of doing it? Other than the Son of God, who is God and fully man, perfect, none of us as humans can do that. The Bible's very clear. It says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. No, not one. It tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we've made one little mistake in the entirety of our life, we have failed in keeping the law. Galatians 2.16 tells us, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The only way we can be saved is through placing our faith in Jesus Christ. 
the one who came to go to the cross to pay the penalty of death. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that is how we are saved, not through keeping the law. Now, all of a sudden, the lawyer, when Jesus calls him out on this in front of the crowd, starts thinking, I should have taken the fifth. I shouldn't have opened my mouth because now everybody's looking at the guy going, and your rebuttal is? So we see in verse 29, it says, but wishing to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, what the lawyer says is, okay, uh, smokescreen, confusion, let's move over to the side, let's get in this endless debate about who the neighbor is, and everybody will forget what the question was. But what Jesus does is he puts the lawyer back in the hot seat by telling this parable that we just read. And as you'll recall, he says, there was a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you know your geography of the Middle East, Jerusalem is at a high point in the, the area. It's at this, uh, up, up on this mountain area where it was not only the capital, but what else was in Jerusalem was the temple, where people went to worship God, where sacrifices were offered. Now, Jericho, as you remember all the way from the days of Joshua, when they defeated Jericho, Jericho was the city of Palms, and it's at a low point in the geography. And so there is a road connecting Jerusalem and Jericho called the Ascent of Adidim. And this is literally, it literally means the road of blood. And the reason it's called that is because it goes through a wilderness area. It's a switchback zigzag limestone trail that goes through this mountainous area, so you're going from Jerusalem, which is the capital city where the temple is, and Jericho, which is called one of the cities, one of the Levitical cities. You recall that when God distributed the land, he took the tribe of Levi, the priests, the Levites, those who served in the temple, and instead of giving them one area, God said, I want to put them in all the other tribal allotments. So in every land area, there were sinners that had the priests and Levites living there, so you had godly teachers of the law living among the people. And what would happen is if you were one of these religious leaders, you would have a duty assignment to go to the temple. And you would go for weeks or months at a time, and you would travel from your Levitical city to the capital, and you would live there in the temple area, and you would serve God, and when your time was done and a new shift of priests and Levites came in, you would return to your house. So Jericho is one of the priestly cities, and you have Jerusalem here, and the two are connected. Now, see, I give you all that background because Jesus, as he tells the parable, you'll notice he says, by chance, a priest happened to be coming along. Now, the people in the first century would have said, this is no coincidental chance. That's the super highway between a priestly city and the temple. There are always priests and Levites traveling that roadway. This is a, a regular occurrence. But again, what he's trying to do is get their attention there in verse 31. He says, and by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, this man beat up in the ditch, he passed by on the other side. Now, when it says he passed by on the other side, there's a joke that says the priest passed by on the other side because he saw the man had already been robbed and there was nothing he could get from him. <laughs> now, I get to tell that joke as a priest, y'all don't. But... It's, what's happening here is others will say, no, 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 that's not what happened. Remember, this, the law said that if somebody were dead and you touched them, you would be defiled, right? 
And they're saying, well, this priest didn't want to take a chance on defiling himself because then he couldn't do his job. Now, this is a great interpretation, except you might have missed one little detail. It said a certain priest was going which direction? Down from Jerusalem to Jericho. If he were going to go to work, he would have been going up the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. What this tells us is this priest has finished his job. He's on his way home. He's been up there for maybe months working, and he's on his way finally back home. And as he's coming down the road, had this man actually been dead and he touched him, he would have been defiled. And then what did the law say? Well, he would have had to turn around and go all the way back to the temple. He would have had to offer sacrifices. It would have delayed his trip. It would have cost him money. It would have been a huge inconvenience for him to do this. So what we find is the problem here that this priest had was one that many of us have today. He didn't want to be inconvenienced. He didn't want to get involved. Here was a priest that was used used to making a sacrifice of everything but himself. Remember, people would bring sacrifices to the temple. And they would present them to the priest, and he would offer them on their behalf. But here the priest was being asked to be the one who would now make a sacrifice of himself, and he didn't want to do it. Does that describe anyone here today? When we walk out of Wayside Chapel, do we tend to leave God here? Do we tend to compartmentalize our Christianity? And we say, well, you know, when I'm serving God at church or when I'm doing things for him, that's one thing. But when I get out into the rest of my my week or my life, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to leave God there at church. You know, sometimes we don't even have to leave church to look the other way, do we? How many times have we come here to church and we see somebody sitting over by themselves looking uh, lonely or maybe distraught? And we think to ourselves, you know, I've had a hard week. And I just wanted to come this, this Sunday and get my own cup filled to sing some songs, to see some friends I haven't gotten to talk to in a while. And the last thing I really want to do is have to deal with somebody that I barely know or don't even know and their problems. And so again, like the priest, we make a sacrifice of everything but ourselves. And we pass by. It may be somebody out there in the hall that looks like they're lost, but we think, you know, I'm going to be late for worship. I'm going to miss the opening songs or, you know, I'm already running late for the sermon. And so rather than stopping to help somebody, again, <coughs> excuse me, we don't want to be inconvenienced. As we look at this parable, we may be thinking, you know, Roger, if I were driving down the road and I saw somebody injured on the side of the road, I would stop. I really would. But it's in those other little things that maybe we say, I'm not willing to be inconvenienced and do these things. And what we may miss are that the people sitting around us right now in this church, or the people we see at school, or who sit in the cubicle, or the desk next to us at work, they're just as beat up and hurting. Now, the wounds aren't as evident. They don't have these external bumps and bruises, but internally they're hurting. And they are hoping that somebody will just reach out to them. They know that you're a Christian. They've heard you talk about your faith or where you go to church or they've seen things. And and they're hoping that maybe one day you will just reach out to them. That you'll notice them in their need and you'll share with them. You know, we live in a broken world where our enemy Satan is at work. 
In John 10.10, Jesus says, Satan has come to steal, to kill, to destroy. And all around us are people who have been attacked and robbed. They've had their self-esteem stolen. They've had their dignity taken from them. Sometimes, yes, by their own choices. Sometimes, yes, by their own sins. But are we those who are willing to reach out to help with these self-inflicted wounds from a lifestyle of sin, drug abuse, alcohol abuse? All around us are the walking wounded. And are we, as believers, willing to be inconvenienced to reach out with the love of God to those who need it? We've talked in the past about a, a one-minute moment here at Wayside. That's where I've, I've asked you guys, as you walk on the property, just find one person you don't know. Whether you see them in the parking lot, when you ride the shuttle, when you come in the sanctuary, make it more than just during the greeting time. And, and just say to them, hi, how are you doing? I'm so-and-so. How are you doing today? And when you ask that question, make sure you let them know that you do want to know. Don't say, how are you doing as you're walking by? Stop. Look them in the eye and say, how are you doing today? And when they give you that kind of look like, do you really want to know? Let them know, yeah, I do. Maybe even sit down next to them and say, I'm listening, I'm ready. Now, Jesus says that after the priest passes by, next along comes a Levite. Levites were also those who served in the temple. They helped with the order, with the worship, with the maintenance. And this guy, too, it says, seeing the man beaten and lying in the ditch, he, too, passes by on the other side. Now, what's unusual in our story is that normally, like I said, you had these shift changes going on. And what happened is whole families would serve together. So rarely were you traveling a road by yourself. You would have been going with a whole group of Levites. But here we're told there's just one. Maybe Jesus sets up the story in such a way that uh, it would cause the person to say, how many of us, when we're with a group of friends, we act differently than we're by ourselves? Is there anybody here guilty of that? Don't raise your hands. But just ask yourself. When you're all alone and nobody else is with you or watching you, do you act differently than if others were watching you? So the Levite's traveling alone. He looks around. Nobody sees what's going on. And he, too, passes by the other side. Now, verse 33 tells us that along comes a certain Samaritan. You see, the priest was willing to make a sacrifice of everything but himself. The Levite, who also served God and led others in service-based activities and in worship, he too is unwilling to make a sacrifice of himself. But along comes a Samaritan who was on a journey. Now, he was definitely on a journey because Samaria was outside of the area of Israel. To be on this road deep in the interior of Israel was unusual. And so this guy would have been a long, long way from home. And it says, he came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. When Jesus tells this guy he's a Samaritan, remember, everybody would have woken up. This is a road between two major Jewish centers. And you have this hated Samaritan traveling along. Now, if you've been thinking of the, the societal hierarchy, the priests and the Levites, the religious leaders, those guys were the top echelon of society. And then along came the Levite. They were right up there in the upper crust as well. Next in line would have been Joe Jew, the average Jewish person traveling along the road. Have you noticed Joe Jew's not mentioned in the story? 
It's just speculation on my part, but do you know where I think he is? I think he's the guy in the ditch, right? We're not told anything about the guy in the ditch. I mean, his clothing has been stripped, his jewelry's taken, so nobody would have been able to tell who he is. Now, because of the sign of the covenant, since he's laying there naked, you would have been able to tell, is he Jewish or not, because he would have had the sign of the covenant. Sorry to be graphic, but the people in the story would have said, I know who this guy is, at least his ethnicity. But Jesus leaves the parable completely blank, so you and I can fill this in with anybody we want to think of. He can be black, white, Hispanic, he can be rich, he can be poor, he can be this or that. It doesn't matter. Because what matters is this is a man created in the image of God, and he's in need, and he's laying there, and nobody will help him in the societal ladder until we jump Joju and we get to the bottom of the ladder. Remember the hated Samaritan? And so the Samaritan sees him. And he's moved by compassion. Rather than move to the other side, he moves closer. He's moved by compassion. As you think about those that you see, how, how do you deal with the needs that you see? You know, what do you do at that moment when you're stopped at the stoplight and you see that, that panhandler coming towards your car? Does this happen to anybody? Oh, it happens every day, doesn't it? And, and what do you do when you're stopped at the stoplight and that person is coming towards your car? What's your immediate thought? Do you lock the doors, roll up the windows? Oh, I'm going to go look at them. I'm going to look away. What, what do you do when your kids are in the car? You know, the other day I'm in the, the van and I've got my three kids in the car. And, you know, my youngest is eight, my oldest is a teenager, and they're, of course, all looking. And, and you know, there's, daddy's a pastor. What's daddy going to do, Right? And so, what do you do in those moments when the person approaches your window? How do you respond? Now, what I'll try to do often is I, I'm always looking for teachable moments. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy that we're to teach our children all the time when we're driving by the way, walking and on and on. And so, I go, here's another teachable moment. Here comes the guy to the window, right? And so one of the things that I try to do whenever I see these things with my kids is, is I try to help them understand choices and consequences. And what I tell them, first of all, is not everything you see is what it appears. And so I can't have all this conversation in 20 seconds as the guy's walking up on the window. These are things we've talked about before. But as the person is coming toward the car, the kids have already heard from me that things are not always what they appear. Some of the people you see on the street are there because of choices. There are others that are there because of choices they didn't make. I've shared my story before, how I was kicked out on the street at the age of 16 because of an abusive father. And I know there are people that have tried desperately to work and that are out on the street for various reasons, but there are others that are out there because they're drug users or they've made other choices. My kids also know daddy was a cop and daddy's dealt with a lot of these people. And so what we will talk about is some of the choices and consequences and how sometimes when you give that money to people, it's going to be used in a way other than what they say. You know, I, some people say, well, I'll give money to the guy who has the truth on his sign. I need a beer. I'm going to smoke cigarettes. Just need some. Well, I'm going to, at least he's telling the truth. I'll give to him, right? So what do you do when you're in that moment and you feel, should I give or not? Tell you one of the things that we've done in our family. We make up little packets like this. 
It's a Ziploc bag. And in the Ziploc bag is a little pocket Bible. There's a track, much like what you see in the pew. May I ask you a question? There's some McDonald's gift certificates, a couple dollars. You can go in McDonald's and buy uh, a dollar menu item. You can get a couple things for that. Sometimes what we put in here is a pack of gum or chapstick because, as you know, they're out there in the sun all day and their lips are getting cracked and uh, other things. These things fit in a glove box. And if you see somebody that you feel a need to help at that moment, you know, don't roll down the window this far and throw it out. There you go. You know, don't get near me. I mean, if you're worried about hygienic and sometimes we put wet wipes or things in there, you can hold one end of the bag and they can take the other, right? And as you give them this, say a kind word to them. Many of them need to know that they're not a pariah. Yeah, they've made some bad choices. But you can just say to them, God loves you. Or here, this is for you, something. Some people I know carry bottles of water in the car and they give them a bottle of water. Now, the other day I was driving along and one of the regulars was at a corner that I go to and I know this guy's a drug addict. I know all the signs of drug use and he's got meth mouth and the sores and all the other things and there was no way I was gonna give him money to feed his habit. But it was on the day where we actually were below freezing and it was really bad out there and this guy was barehanded holding his little sign. I could see his hands were freezing. And I carry work gloves in my pickup truck. And, you know, they're, they're fairly expensive work gloves. But at the moment I saw this guy, his hands were bare. And I rolled down the window and I reached under my seat and I pulled out my gloves and I said, here, these are from Jesus. That guy smiled ear to ear as he put on those gloves. And as he sat there, he just, oh, thank you. Thank you, God bless you. I said, well, God bless you. And I drove on up the road. The Bible tells us that if we give a drink of water to somebody in the name of Jesus, we've given it to Jesus. If we visit somebody in prison, we've given it, we've done it unto Jesus himself. Now, again, use discretion. I do not give to every person on every corner. I don't respond to every need. But if God moves you in a way, then do a little pre-planning. Put together a couple Ziploc bags, put a few things in them like that, and then you can have them, and then you're not at that moment feeling, what do I do? If you feel moved, if God leads you to do it, then you can respond in a, in a way of need. Now, as we look at the Samaritan moving to meet the need here, it requires a lot of him. This is, this is more than just handing over a Ziploc bag. He doesn't pop open a box of Band-Aids, but he begins to tear off a part of his tunic. People in this day usually only had one set of clothing. So when it says he began to bandage the guy's wounds, he's, he's probably literally taking the shirt off his back, ripping strips off his, his clothing, and he's bandaging this guy's wounds. It, it, it says that he takes and pours oil and wine on this guy to treat his wounds. These were the antiseptic of the day. These were the staples of life. It's what you ate with, cooked with, traded with even. And so as, they're clean, as he's cleaning out the wounds, as he's sealing them with the oil and the other things. And what you have to understand is this is very costly. Remember, this guy is on a long journey. 
He's packed all the provisions he needs. He's a Samaritan. The Jews hate Samaritans. This guy isn't going to be able to stop at the corner uh, grocery store or, um, you know, CVS or Walmart or Walgreens or something like that to resupply. What he has with him is what he has. So he's giving out of his necessary provisions. If he runs out, you can bet nobody as a Samaritan is going to help this guy out. Next, we're told he lifts the man onto his donkey, his beast. And as he's doing these things, the whole time he's wondering if the robbers are coming back. This is sin of Edomine, this road of blood. There are all these limestone crags and caves and blind corners. And if they've ambushed this guy right here, chances are they're still pretty close by. And as he's down on his knees trying to get this guy out of the ditch and put him on the donkey and he stopped and other things like that, what's happening is he's, a, he's an easy target. And now as he's going to have to walk his donkey slowly with this injured man on the back, he's going to move slower. He's going to be easy pickings for the robbers. <clears throat> Next we're told he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. Now, inns in this day were not like ours. We all know there are those places you want to avoid, but then there are reputable hotel or motel chains you can stop at. And this day, every inn along the way that was around was usually a place of uh, not very good reputation. And again, as a Samaritan, a hated person, they would have cheated him, they would have robbed him, they would have done things. He comes into this inn, he has to pay for a room. He's up all night caring for this injured man. This guy's wounds are deep. The Greek word that is used is trauma. We call emergency rooms trauma wards to deal with the most critically injured. This speaks of a very deep, severe uh, wounding to this man. And so this guy's maybe hanging on by a thread and this guy's up all night, the Samaritan, nursing this guy back to health. In the morning, he's stabilized. He goes to the innkeeper and what he does is he pulls out his credit card and he runs it through the machine. He signs a blank slip and hands it over and says, whatever it costs, just charge it to my account. Now, if you're the innkeeper, who is a man of no reputation, and this is a Samaritan, you're thinking, kid's college just got paid for. I'm going to charge this guy for everything I can. I'm going to take advantage of him. And yet what he does is he says, I'm going to cover whatever cost. And on my way back, I'll stop in to see if there's even more to cover. Do you see the inconvenience and the cost that is mounting? Do you see why so many people passed by to the other side and didn't even want to be a part of this? He's already out all the, the time, all the money, and now he leaves an open-ended credit card. There are men and women, like I said before, they're all around us who are looking for people like the Samaritan, saying, will somebody be like this man? Will somebody just reach out to me with a need, the need I have, show God's love to me? You know, as I'm preaching this parable this morning, I want to tell you it has a very real personal uh, message for me this morning. I mentioned my dad just a few moments ago, my abusive father who kicked me out at 16. Tuesday, I got a call that I knew would come for about 20 years got a call from a social worker in the Dallas area who said, my father surfaced. 
And as you, those of you who know my story, about 12 years ago is the last time I've actually talked to my dad. It's been 25 years since I've physically seen my father. He showed up at my wedding, I invited him, and one of my brothers left the wedding because he said if, and I won't use the words, if he's here, I'm not, and he left. So I get a call from a social worker saying my dad is homeless, he's dealing with mental issues, he can't walk, and he's in an interim care facility that his time is up and they need to know what to do with him. And so my dad said, call my son down in San Antonio, he's a pastor. I called my five other brothers and sisters and I can't repeat some of the conversations in a church setting that I had with my siblings, but none of them want anything to do with the situation. So what am I gonna do? Am I gonna pass by on the other side? Am I as a, a priest gonna make a sacrifice of everything but myself? What would you do? Well, I've been dealing with the social workers, I've been dealing with the care things, I've been dealing with the system this week, and I'm gonna be headed up to Dallas to see my dad next week to try to figure out next steps. I talked to him by phone, and it's funny, within about five minutes, uh, his anger and hate and everything started spewing over again. He's mad that I'm involved. His pride uh, won't let him take any help, and yet he knows he has nowhere else to turn. So you can pray for me. You can pray for wisdom as I deal with the situation. But as you look at this parable this morning and you think about the situations in your own life, what are you going to do with today's sermon? The passage ends by telling us, Jesus said, go and do the same. How will you respond to this message today? Is there somebody at school that you see? Somebody where you work? A neighbor on the street who has a need? Maybe a person sitting in the pew next to you this morning. And you see a need... And I understand the busyness of life and the unwillingness to add to the cost and the inconvenience and all the things in your world. But what will we do with those people who are created in the image of God that are all along the roadside? How will we respond? We're coming to the communion table now. And in it, we see how God responded to us in our need. You know, in the story, we had the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan as the hero of the story. But the reality is, it's not the Samaritan, but the Son of God who's the hero of the story. Because God saw our need. He saw how we were far from him. He saw how we were lost, dead and dying in a ditch with no hope, nowhere to turn to. And what God willingly did is he left his throne in heaven to come to earth, to go to the cross, to take my place and yours, to show us mercy, mercy that we didn't deserve. You know, as you read the story, Jesus ends by asking this religious leader, when it's all over, after the whole story is told, he said, which of these men became a neighbor is how the Greek literally reads. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? 
And did you notice the, the guy can't even choke out the word Samaritan? He says, well, I, I guess the guy who helped. And that's when Jesus says, go and do the same. For us today, who is it that became a neighbor to us? Who is it that entered into our neighborhood, our world, into our need, and was willing to pay a cost much more than just the inconvenience, much more than the daily provisions, much more than the income that it would cost? He paid with his very life. He shed his very blood for us. He poured out his life as a sacrifice to wash away my sins and yours. The man in the story found mercy and grace where he least expected it from the Samaritan. You and I have found mercy and grace from the place we would have least expected it as well. From the very God that we offended. From the very God that we turned our back on and ran from in rebellion when we sinned. And yet it says he sent his son. Jesus loved us so much he came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In a moment, the men are going to pass the elements. You'll have a piece of bread representing the body of Christ. You'll have a cup of juice representing the blood of Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never turned from your sins into Jesus to be your Savior, I invite you today to receive him. To say to God, God, I know I don't deserve this. I've been running. I've been in rebellion. I've been far from you. I've hurt you, and I have no right to ask of you any help. But I thank you, God, that you loved me enough to take my place, to come and die for me. And today, Jesus, I want to turn from my sins, and I want to turn to you to be my Savior. If you've never taken that step of faith before, I invite you to take the cup representing his blood, the bread representing his body, and to say to God, today, God, I'm turning from my sins into you. I want your grace. I want your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And for the rest of us who have taken that step of faith before, I want you to take those elements and hold them. And I want you to think about anything in your life that you need to confess today so that you can come to this table with clean hands and hearts, confessing your sins. And I'll lead us in a time of communion in a moment. Men, will you pass the elements, please?
We hold in our hand a piece of bread, but it's much more than that. It represents the body of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was willing to leave his place of glory, his throne in heaven, to enter into the muck and the mire and the, the mess of our world, to take my place and yours, to show to us mercy from where we least expected it, the very God that we offended, but it demonstrates how much God really loves us. When we read Romans 5, 8, and it says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is what it means. That he was willing to spare no expense, no level of inconvenience, no level of pain in order to cover the gap, to restore the relationship, to bring us home. The body of Jesus Christ, he did in remembrance of him. And in our hand, we hold a cup. Again, it's much more than the juice that it contains. It represents the very blood of the Son of God. Precious blood. Shed to wash away my sins and yours. To make us white as snow. To hit the reset button and to give us a chance to one day be welcomed home in heaven with our Savior, Jesus Christ the blood of Jesus Christ, drink it in remembrance of him. <clears throat> Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your great gift of grace, your willingness to extend to us mercy, grace, love beyond measure, Father, for those of us who have been recipients of your grace, may we be willing to demonstrate it to others. May we not be like the priest and the Levite who left you here at church, God, who walked out of here unwilling to make a sacrifice of ourselves as we see those that we will meet on the street, as we see those we see in school, in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, maybe even those who will be sitting in the car with us as we drive home. Father, would we who have been forgiven by you be willing to forgive others? Would we who have been blessed by you be willing to bless others? Give us wisdom and discretion as we share your love. But help us, Father, not to be unwilling to make a sacrifice of our own lives. Thank you again for the greatest sacrifice, that of your son, Jesus, who saved us. Send us into the world now as your hands and feet. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a need, there are prayer leaders here at the front that would love to pray with you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.